Hello and welcome to this episode of the Geoeconomic Agenda, a podcast from the Institute of Geoeconomics in Tokyo that investigates the connections between economics, geopolitics, business, and society. I'm your host, Paul Netto, and I'm a visiting researcher here at the IOG. We'll be sitting down with James Brown, Professor of Political Science at Temple University's Japan campus, to discuss the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what it's meant for Asia, and where we go from here. But first, we'll begin with the latest developments and news in the world of geoeconomics. Wally Adeyemo, Deputy Secretary of Treasury for International Affairs, warned Chinese companies against providing technology to Russia or other similar support, warning of steep penalties for such moves. In a speech at the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington, D.C., he noted that several countries had deepened their financial ties with Russia since the invasion began, once other markets had closed off following the sanctions levied against Russia in response. The European Union is also considering its own new measures to punish Russia and those helping them circumvent sanctions. A draft proposal, reported by Bloomberg, would include expanding the basis for which firms and countries may be sanctioned, increase the EU's capacity to monitor potential violations, and more. South Korea's semiconductor exports dove 43.9% in the first 20 days of the new quarter, a worrying sign for both the semiconductor industry and for the world economy as a whole, given the correlation between the country's semiconductor exports and global economic health. The outlook is grim given the prospect of central bank tightening around the globe, the ongoing war in Ukraine, and uncertainties about China's economic recovery. British Business and Trade Secretary Kemi Bidenok said that she expects the United Kingdom to enter the Trans-Pacific Partnership this year. Japan, as leader of the TPP's Ascension Working Group, said on February 17th that Britain had been approved to negotiate the next stage of the Ascension process. The most recent negotiating round for the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF, was held in New Delhi, India, from February 8th to 11th. According to the readout from the U.S. Department of Commerce, there were text-based discussions on pillars covering supply chains, clean economy, and fair economy. The U.S. Commerce Department has also added six Chinese aerospace companies to a trade blacklist for their involvement in China's surveillance efforts. This is in response to the, the appearance of a Chinese surveillance balloon in U.S. airspace. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai and EU Commissioner for Trade Valdis Dombrovskis met on the sidelines of the Munich Security Conference to discuss the two sides' issues with the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRA, which passed last summer, stipulated that the only countries which could qualify for electric vehicle tax credits are those with whom the United States has a free trade agreement. That does not include the EU. The two announced that they'll meet again during Dombrovskis' visit to Washington on March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, surreptitiously coinciding with the release of the U.S. Treasury Department's criteria of what qualifies as a free trade agreement. Finally, the U.S. Senate Finance Committee is working on legislation that would strengthen the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol's ability to block the import of counterfeits, goods made with forced labor, or those that include stolen intellectual property, or goods containing illegally harvested products. Ron Wyden, chair of the Senate Finance Committee, said that trade in these goods costs the U.S. economy $600 billion per year, with 33% of seizures 
coming from China, followed by 18% from Hong Kong and 11% from Turkey. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Netto. I'm sitting down with Professor James Brown, Professor of Political Science at Temple University's Japan campus. He's an expert in Japan-Russia relations and he's joined us today to talk about the current status of Russia's invasion of Ukraine as we've marked one anniversary of the initial hostilities. Professor Brown, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you. So one year on, what's the current status of the war? Where are we? Well, I think at the moment we're, we're waiting for, for the next stage. Um, the, the Russian offensive has probably already begun. That might intensify in the in the coming weeks. We're also anticipating that there'll be a Ukrainian offensive as well, uh, perhaps starting um, in the in the spring, and so that will be uh, a major determinant of um, the the territorial uh, kind of holdings of the of the two sides. Another factor which is particularly relevant at the moment is the the competition in. Uh, maintaining and building up the armaments of each side. Both the Ukrainian forces and the Russian forces have used up a huge amount of their munitions. And there's very much a, a race that's on at the moment in order to, uh, to replenish those stocks. And on the Ukrainian side, that depends a lot on the amount of support which will be provided by, uh, by backers of the, the Ukrainian government. So when you talk about the war and its global implications, you often hear discussion about, you know, energy supplies to Europe or grain supplies to the global south or just the price of grain in general. In terms of Japan, in terms of Asia, how exactly has the war impacted this region? How have lives changed since that, that in the initial moments of the invasion uh, one year ago today? Well, there certainly have been a significant effects, but I don't think we can compare them with the impact uh, within Europe. Within Europe, where you have uh, countries that had long been dependent uh, for large amounts of their energy supplies on, on Russia, whose economic models, such as that of Germany, had been largely built on uh, cheap Russian energy, the impact there has been much greater. But that's not to say that there haven't been effects within Asia as well. But a lot of that has depended on the, the response of the, of the governments. So let's take some, some concrete examples. In the case of Japan, Japan has decided to phase out uh, oil and coal imports from Russia, but they've remained committed to importing LNG. If you take uh, another couple of large economies, that of China and India, very different position, uh, rather than seeking to, to phase out supplies, they've been capitalizing on the availability of, of cheap Russian energy that in the past would have gone elsewhere. So for, for those Asian countries, you could say it's actually been beneficial. Now, the question of LNG imports, how does that fit into you know, the broader issue of J Japanese politics? Because that was not without controversy, I believe, correct? I'd say it is controversial. that. Um, you have uh, other countries that have either already significantly decreased their imports of, uh, of gas from Russia, or at least they have set in place an ambitious plan to reduce those imports over the next few years. And we look at the, the Japanese case, uh, imports of Russian LNG actually increased last year. 
uh, added to that, there isn't a plan to, to phase out LNG. Now, the Japanese government has um, good arguments that they put forward, pointing to Japan's particular vulnerability when it comes to, to energy supplies. But I think you could rightly uh, reasonably make the argument that at least you could have a plan over the coming years. Because otherwise, it's perfectly possible that Japan will continue to import larger amounts of LNG. And that, after all, is money that goes to, to fund this war in Ukraine. That's a very good point. And that's one I was just about to, to ask you about is how much revenue is Russia drawing from these sales? It, how far is this going in, in supporting the Russian war effort? Because, as you well know, the entire political economy of Putin's Russia was built on exports of oil and natural gas. That's how he funded the military. That's how he's funded state coffers. That's how he's distributed rents among different stakeholders. So, go, so if there's still money coming in from LNG sales, I would expect that that's having a very you know, positive outcome, relatively positive outcome on Putin's effort to continue waging this war. Well, in the case of Sakhalin 2, which is where uh, most of the, uh, the LNG imported by Japan from Russia comes from, it's a little bit complicated. And the Japanese government might make the case that actually it's not contributing enormously to the Russian budget. And the reason for that is because Japan purchases that LNG on long-term contracts for which Japan pays uh, quite a reasonable price. And so Japan could make the counter-argument that if it wasn't buying that gas, Russia could then sell that to someone else, sell it on the spot price for, uh, on the spot market, I should say, for a higher price and would actually gain greater revenue. So yes, Japan's money is contributing to the Russian budget, but there is that counter-argument saying that if it didn't go to Japan, it would be sold to someone else and maybe at a higher price. Now, Japan and its relations with Russia, particularly with Vladimir Putin, have been, say, complicated, particularly in the, the last, not the last administration, I should say, two administrations ago under Abe Shinzo. Can you describe Abe's relations with Putin, what he hoped to get out of that relationship, and how represent, I mean, because it was very unique, as you don't need me to tell you, how representative of, was that of LDP attitudes towards Russia? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, the, the basics of the, the policy. So uh, Abe took the, the judgment when he returned to, to power in uh, December 2012 that uh, relations with Russia should be a major priority. And there were two reasons for that, two main reasons anyway. One of them was the desire to uh, resolve the territorial dispute and uh, sign a peace treaty, thereby putting an end to that issue that's been ongoing since uh, the Second World War. And then the second one, the strategic one, is that Abe took the view that Japan is in a very perilous security situation with a more powerful China, with North Korea, with its nuclear missile programs, and with a troubled relationship with South Korea. And so in that respect, it made sense from his point of view to try and normalize the relationship with Russia, establish a partnership with Russia, and then at least there would be stabilized relations on Japan's northern border. So that was the plan, and he pursued it uh, by trying to establish very close personal ties with Putin. And furthermore, 
to incentivize Russian concessions by offering economic cooperation, putting forward an eight-point economic cooperation plan and also establishing the post of Minister for Economic Cooperation with Russia, which continues to this day in the Japanese cabinet. But it, it really didn't turn out well. Uh, he was an outlier on this. Not entirely, there are some others within the LDP that hold a similar view, but more broadly, the party and Japanese society more broadly took a more negative view of Russia. And frankly, they were proven to be correct. This was clearly a misjudgment by Abe. In other respects of his domestic and foreign policy, he got a lot right. But his Russia policy, we can now say clearly, was badly misjudged. And indeed, engagement with Russia after 2014, in retrospect, looks very bad. It shows, um, and he wasn't the only one in this respect, it indicates that, well, it sent the message to the Russian side that uh, foreign governments would be willing to continue engagement even after Russia had you know, seized territory from a neighboring country. Now, how has that approach changed since the invasion of Ukraine? Is there still an audience for an approach similar to Abe's, or is it more solidly behind Ukraine? Well, first of all, what happened after Abe left the premiership is that the policy officially remained the same, but it simply lost momentum. It didn't have Abe's personal commitment behind it. So under, under Suga and then under early Kishida, the policy was supposedly the same, but the, the, the prime ministers didn't really devote any attention to it. And then after uh, the, the invasion uh, of February 2022, there was the distinctive change. And um, what we now have is relations between Japan and Russia being just about their, their worst in you know, um, certainly recent memory. Uh, Russia has categorized Japan as an unfriendly state. Japan, of course, has introduced um, a series of sanctions. Um, public opinion within Japan has gone from negative to extremely negative towards Russia. So yes, the bilateral relationship is in a, in a very bad situation. Now, I'm glad you mentioned public opinion, actually, because one of the things that struck me living in Tokyo is the outpouring of public support for Ukraine. And in a way that's understandable because you know, people always love an underdog. And I think in this regards, most people consider Ukraine to be an underdog. But it's gone above and beyond, almost to the point where I would say the Japanese public supports Ukraine visibly more than its politicians more than its leaders do. And that's not to say that its politicians and leaders don't support Ukraine. But there has been a lot of what appears to be, as far as I can tell, genuine public support for, for Ukraine in this, in this war. I haven't been able to figure it out myself. Can you, you speak to possible sources for that, where that's coming from? Well, I think I'd mention a, a couple of points. The first one is that this is such a, an a scenario that's so easy to understand. There's a lot about kind of international politics that requires a lot of nuance, that requires a lot of detailed knowledge. This is pretty straightforward. We have a country with established international borders that have been recognized, including by, by Russia in the past, 
and then this is a full-scale invasion. You don't really need to know much about Russian or Ukrainian history to understand that this is a, an act of, of naked aggression. And so I think for, for, for that reason, it's easy for the Japanese public to, to understand and to sympathize. Another factor is that uh, the, the Ukrainian government, more broadly, and also the Ukrainian embassy here in Japan has been uh, very active and very effective in getting their message across. And uh, I think the, the public relations efforts of the Ukrainian government, uh, their activity on, on social media and in various countries and various languages has, has really helped to get their message across. It's interesting that you mentioned ammunition shortages because that's one, yet another example of the supply chain bottlenecks that have clogged up the system since the COVID-19 pandemic. So, can you elaborate a bit on what those challenges are specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, uh, the background to this is that we've not had a, a war similar to this in, in decades. And uh, the arms industry in, in Europe, in the United States, is uh, oriented towards peacetime or to providing weaponry which is required for counterinsurgency. And so you didn't require enormous numbers of, of missiles, of, of artillery. And uh, that means that it's very hard to suddenly change that situation. Um, you can't simply go from producing you know, dozens of, of missiles to producing you know, hundreds or thousands of them. That takes an awful lot of, a lot of time. And also, you don't want just anyone suddenly coming into uh, this field and beginning to, to provide uh, components, key parts. So there has to be a proper process of approval of these companies that are involved. And uh, that, take, that takes months. And so scaling it up takes a, a very long time. So, so who will prevail? Uh, I think uh, a lot of it depends on political will. And if the political will uh, remains within Europe and the United States, then I'm confident that the West would um, increase the supplies and would be able to give Ukraine what they need. If you compare that with the, the Russian side, where um, Russia could perhaps act more, more quickly, but can they produce uh, the, the quality of the resources of the, the armaments which are required? That's questionable because sanctions haven't managed to damage the Russian economy uh, to such an extent that GDP numbers have fallen to the extent that was expected, but they have had an impact on uh, preventing Russia from getting the key technology that they need for certain armaments. But the big issue, as I mentioned, is political will in the United States and Europe. Can you elaborate just a little bit on the impact that sanctions and export controls have had on Russia's ability to wage this war. I mean, obviously they're having a harder time and they will have a harder time to source a lot of key components. Um, plus there's also the issue of having to mobilize people into the army when rather than having them do more productive things like work in the economy. So how, how is Russia doing in the economic warfare part of this? Are they, are they resilient? Are cracks beginning to show? What's the prognosis? I think both things are true, actually. The one additional factor that you didn't mention is people fleeing the country right. as well. That you have hundreds of thousands of Russians 
uh, often the the best educated, the the most the most capable, who have decided to to leave the country and go go elsewhere. That affects their um, their their economy as well. So have they been resilient? Yes, I think the the technocrats that remain within Russia have done a. Um, well, I have to say, quite an impressive job at keeping the, the show on the road to the extent that they have. But nonetheless, the, the cracks are certainly there and they will continue to become wider. So let's take a particular example for the high precision uh, weaponry missiles for which you require more sophisticated equipment, semiconductors. That's an area where Russia has uh, a clear shortage. And that's part of the reason why they've had to resort to more uh, brute force. Uh, and so they're looking at workarounds to get the, the key components from other sources. Now, they are getting some of them, including from, you know, out of domestic appliances, sourced through third countries and that sort of thing. But all of that takes more time and also leads to lower quality in the components that they're getting. So as we close the book on one year of this war, and with no sign of the hostility stopping, what should we look for next beyond the munitions arm race, arms race, excuse me? What kind of trends should we look for? What's your predictions, if you have any? What um, should our listeners expect to come next? Well, part of it is, is a matter of choice, I think. Choice um, of the supporters of Ukraine. If um, support continues at a sort of medium level, then Ukraine's resistance will be maintained. Um, there might be some gains here and there, but that will be a recipe for the war lasting um, you know, longer and longer. If, however, a means is found to really crank up the support uh, into new areas and uh, to take the volume of support to a greater level, that will enhance the ability for Ukraine not just to resist, but really to push back the Russian forces and uh, to put Putin into an ever more difficult situation. That, I believe, is the, the key to shortening this war. Um, of course, it comes with, with risks. We all hope that uh, the, the Putin regime would not be so reckless, so uh, misguided as to actually consider using nuclear weapons. But that is something which we can't rule out, unfortunately. But I think it's that scale of support for Ukraine which is really key to watch over the coming months. When you say cranking up, what do you mean specifically? More arms, more money, D, all of the above? What does cranking up look like? For that, you need to look at what the, the Ukrainians are, are asking for. Now, of course, uh, financing is is very important. But when I look at the statements from the Ukrainian government, their main concern is their ability to maintain their resistance. And for that, they, they need weapons. Uh, they need uh, military equipment of other non-lethal sorts as well. That's what will help to determine the, the key weeks to come as these offensives uh, gather pace. Professor James Brown, thanks again for joining us. And this is certainly a space that we're going to be keeping an eye on in the future. This is the Geoeconomics Agenda with Paul Netto. Finally, as you heard us discuss, supply chain bottlenecks following the COVID-19 pandemic has made consumers and people with only a passing interest in international economics 
suddenly aware of the role that economic interdependence plays in our everyday lives. But as James Brown described, it's not just consumers that are struggling with supply chain bottlenecks, it's also soldiers in Ukraine. Just like lots of other things in everyday life, ammunition is also produced along a supply chain. And just like every other supply chain, it's subject to bottlenecks, shortages, and other challenges that impact whether ammunition can make it to the front lines and whether there's even enough of it. A report in the Financial Times last week described these challenges in more detail. Long story short, the sides are using ammunition faster than they can replenish it, and suppliers are scrambling to come up with enough to continue supporting the effort. Companies are increasing production by hiring more people, accelerating their production schedules, and with defense planners asking Ukraine to simply use less ammunition. But given the capital investments necessary, long lead times and difficulties with sourcing materials, and more, the situation shows that ammunition is not bottomless and that the arms industry is susceptible to the same supply chain bottlenecks as everyone else. For example, antimony, a metal used in everything from bullets to nuclear missiles, is now sourced only from China. This isn't the first time that the United States has had difficulty getting antimony from China. During World War II, Japan cut off supplies of the mineral to the United States from China, and a mine in Idaho supplied the United States with the antimony it needed after that point. But the mine closed in 1997, again leaving China as the only supplier. The next largest producer is Russia. There's also the very American problem that surging gun ownership is contributing to the ammunition shortage. The European Union, for its part, is thinking about funding injections to increase production, but this, like many other things, adds to the costs of the war. As for Russia, its industrial base is in even worse shape and now facing added challenges from sanctions and export controls. These controls on semiconductors have put pressure on Russia's stock of precision-guided missiles and other high-end weaponry, while export controls have reduced the possible sources available to restock Russian supplies. So supply chain challenges are everywhere, and unclogging the bottlenecks might go a long way towards determining how Russia's invasion of Ukraine will end. That's all for this episode, but stay tuned for more on the way. Until then, we want to know what you want to hear about as well as take your questions for our show. So send us an email at geoeconomicagenda at ihj.global. Be sure to like, rate, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, tell your friends, and most of all, keep listening. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to the team at API for making this happen. And we'll talk to you next time.